Welcome to our podcast series, Privacy Abbreviated, brought to you by BBB National Programs and Osano. We hope to help business leaders operationalize and prepare for what's next in privacy. I'm Catherine Dawson, General Counsel and Chief Privacy Officer at Osano, a data privacy compliance platform. And I'm Rebecca Knight, Policy Counsel for Privacy Initiatives at BBB National Programs. I'm filling in for Donna Frazier this episode, and I'm very happy to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about developments related to transferring personal data from the EU to the U.S., and specifically the recent executive order that outlined the steps the United States will take to uphold its commitments under the new EU-U.S. Data Privacy Framework, or DPF, and hopefully secure a new adequacy decision. It's an important topic for a lot of U.S. businesses who have been trying to navigate these transfer issues. We've got a great guest for the show, Coben's Weifel Keegan, the Managing Director of the Washington, D.C. Office of the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Coben, thank you for joining us. Could you tell your listeners uh, who might not be familiar with the IAPP what it does and what your role there entails? Yes, of course. And thanks so much for having me on, Catherine and Rebecca. It's great to talk to you both today. The IEPP is a global professional association for the privacy profession. Its mission is to define, promote, and improve the profession of privacy and data protection around the world. And so I'm here in Washington, D.C. as the representative of the profession and and someone to keep track of the policy conversation that is always evolving uh, at the federal level in the U.S. and That, of course, also overlaps with all of our our state privacy developments and some of these international developments uh, like Privacy Shield. Well, welcome to the show, and thank you for being a guest today. Just so we're all on the same page, Rebecca, would you mind laying out for our listeners what the main issue is with respect to the EU data transfers and how we got to this point? Of course. So the history of how we got here spans nearly two decades, right? So I'll try to keep it as brief as possible, but we're going to go on a little bit of of a journey with this. So first, let's take a step back and talk about transfer mechanisms. So under the GDPR, there are essentially three main transfer mechanisms organizations can use to transfer the personal data of EU citizens to other countries. These three mechanisms are binding corporate rules, or BCRs. These are only used internal to corporations, though. Standard contractual clauses, or SECs, and adequacy. Adequacy is considered the gold standard of transfer mechanisms, and only about a dozen countries have received this recognition thus far. That includes the U.S. But what is adequacy, right? Adequacy is a formal decision made by the EU, which recognizes that another country provides an equivalent, i.e. the same, level of protection for data privacy or personal data as the the EU does. Adequacy is achieved in five distinct steps, and the IEPP has a great infographic about this. Shout out to y'all, Coben. So hopefully we can link it in the show notes. But first, the EU Commission needs to draft an adequacy decision, right? So there's a draft decision. That draft decision is provided to the European Data Protection Board, or EDPB, for review. And you know we love an acronym around here. So I'll, I'll try to spell those out as much as I can. So second, the EDPB reviews the draft adequacy decision and issues its non-binding opinion. The third step is the European Parliament taking that that draft adequacy decision and then adopting a non-binding resolution on its position about it, right? What are their feelings on it? 
The next step and the fourth step is 55% of the EU member states representing 65% of the total EU population must approve the adequacy decision itself. All right. So there is, you know, a vote and an adoption period that has to take place from those EU membership states, which is really key. And then fifth and finally, if that approval goes through, the adequacy determination is adopted and it takes effect immediately, right? So as soon as that goes through, the vote's in, it takes effect. So based on previous adequacy decision timelines, this process has taken about six months, right? Within six months. As such, most privacy professionals are expecting to see the new framework take effect in March, 2023. Now, this is the U.S.'s third adequacy decision, right? This will be, and we have achieved and lost adequacy twice. So first we had the U.S.-EU safe harbor framework. This was invalidated by the Court of Justice of the European Union, or CJEU, by the SHRIMS 1 decision in 2015. Then we had Privacy Shield. That framework was invalidated by SHRIMS 2 in 2020. As such, since 2020, the U.S. has relied on other mechanisms, such as BCRs, right, or SCCs, as we discussed earlier, to continue transferring personal data from the EU to the U.S. At the heart of both SHRIMS 1 and SHRIMS 2, though, is the issue of U.S. government surveillance, and specifically signals intelligence. Signals intelligence is defined by the NSA as a collection of foreign intelligence from communication and information systems, usually radar, things of that nature, which is provided to U.S. agencies, i.e. high-ranking military officials, government officials, for the purpose of protecting national security. Now, in SHRIMS 2, the CJEU reasoned that the U.S. surveillance activities were not limited to what's strictly necessary and this has resulted in disproportionate interference with the rights afforded to EU citizens under the GDPR. Additionally, the CJEU reasoned that EU citizens subjected to that surveillance didn't have an actual redress mechanism against those U.S. authorities who are administering these programs. And so as a result, Privacy Shield was invalidated, and here we are nearly two years later. But thankfully, this year, things started turning around first with the March 25th announcement, and then the October 7th executive order on enhancing safeguards for United States signals intelligence. Both are intended to be a direct response to the CJEU's concerns. So using SHRIMS as a roadmap, the EEO really outlines four important safeguards. First, there is a necessary and proportionate requirement. So signal intelligence should only be used when reasonable under the circumstances to achieve a legitimate objective and must not disproportionately impact the privacy or civil liberties of any individual. Second, one of the 12 legitimate objectives must be present. I won't list them all here because there, you know, it's 12 of them, so it's quite a bit to, to get through. But these objectives include things such as protecting against foreign militaries, terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, and cyber threats, right? And then third, there must be oversight. So this means that any sig signal intelligence activities will be subjected to rigorous oversight processes, both internally by the agency themselves and externally by the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. And fourth and finally, the fourth safeguard is a two-layer redress mechanism. The first layer is an investigation by the Civil Liberties Protection Officer to determine whether any safeguard or law was violated. The second layer is a data protection review court that provides an independent and binding review of that CLPO's determination. 
So with that background, I think we're really ready to jump in, Catherine. Thank you, Rebecca. That was quite helpful. And I think the in-depth analysis is much appreciated. So I know that there was a lot of collaboration between the U.S. and the European Commission this time around. Coben, I'm assuming that that upfront collaboration was, in part, aiming to resolve any issues that might prevent an adequacy decision. Do you think the executive order addressed the concerns in SHREMS 2 and that adequacy will be granted? Yeah, that's a really good question, Catherine, and I have to echo uh, you there in, term, in terms of thanking Rebecca for that amazing uh, overview. I think that was very comprehensive and, and perfect. I would have nothing to add to that, so I uh, really appreciate the clarity and succinctness there. I think that's definitely been the goal, right? There has been this long back and forth between the European Commission and U.S. authorities trying to pregame and think through all of the implications of the European Court of Justice's opinion on prior agreement and, and try to address some of their main concerns. As Rebecca already talked about, I think you can summarize those concerns as issues around proportionality and redress in when it comes to U.S. government access to personal data of Europeans. And it's clear that this executive order is is catered to and, and trying to address those particular concerns. The multi-layered mechanism for redress in particular is meant to create, to satisfy the court. Uh, it, it, it's clear that the, the U.S. executive branch has tried to be very creative in building a mechanism that would exercise as much independence as possible while still flowing from different areas of power within the executive branch and having things like independent arbiters who sit on that uh, the court that, that Rebecca mentioned to help create those final determinations, that all will help to convince in any future challenge will help to convince the European Court of Justice that this meets the requirements that they're looking for. Obviously, none of that is guaranteed um, and adequacy isn't even guaranteed because of the long process that Rebecca outlined. But this has been a long and thoughtful back and forth that hopefully will lead to a kind of a lasting solution that is proportionate and meets the requirements of, of the legal regimes of both sides. So as you mentioned, there are a lot of steps between before between here where we are now and uh, adequacy being granted. So you know one of the things we try to do on this podcast is help business leaders think about and strategize around privacy issues. So assuming adequacy is granted, do we expect it to be challenged, or what should business leaders think about in terms of how comfortable they should feel relying upon it? Yeah. So. I think there's two parts of that. First, yes, I think companies should know that once this is in place, this will represent the law of the land. There will, there will be a legal mechanism for transferring data from the EU to the U.S., assuming that that adequacy is granted. One one complicating factor there is that this is the U.S., in each of these three iterations now, the U.S. adequacy is very different than other adequacy decisions that have been 
given to other countries. Most of those are kind of overall adequacy. They don't require action on the part of businesses. But in the U.S. case, there's this voluntary mechanism that was that's represented by the Privacy Shield Certification Framework that requires some commitments that, for, that U.S. companies make that then immediately have the force of law in the U.S. because they're publicly enshrined in their privacy policies and therefore enforceable by the Federal Trade Commission. So once you make those commitments that you are, are held to them, whether or not uh, there's an adequacy decision in place, whether or not you're getting the, the benefit of having this legal transfer mechanism in place, there's also, I think, companies should be considering the fact that Privacy Shield is a much broader mechanism. Any kind of adequacy agreement is a, is a broader transfer mechanism than things like SCCs that can't SECs don't provide for all the types of transfer scenarios that are covered under something like Privacy Shield. And the best example of that for me is is the fact that like uh, SECs are mostly they're contractual arrangements, right? So they're between controllers and processors, or or controllers and controllers. But not all the data that we collect and and transfer across the ocean is coming from another company. Often people are collecting directly from data subjects, and that kind of information is better suited to something like uh, Privacy Shield, like this uh, new framework that we're going to see. So I think companies will immediately begin relying on it as soon as it exists. There's already been a lot of companies that have remained in Privacy Shield as well, they'll be able to quickly rely on this new mechanism. I think a lot of companies are also taking a belt and suspenders approach when it comes to data transfers. I think they are self-certifying under Privacy Shield, meeting all of the commitments that they're required to make regarding EU data subjects, but then also trying to address trying to add uh, standard contractual clauses between any entities that they're doing business with in the EU and conducting data transfer impact assessments, which have sort of become de rigueur after the CJEU decision. We're seeing that for every transfer that you conduct, companies are are having to think through the risks of government access and, and these other issues that have been raised by the European court. So those practices are going to continue and this kind of uh, framework is just going to to streamline some of that and, and make things more achievable in the near term. I think that's right. And that certainly has been our approach at Asano is to remain certified under Privacy Shield and use standard contractual clauses and conduct data transfer impact assessments. So we're looking forward to a streamlined approach, certainly. Awesome. So a message that we've consistently heard from the Department of Commerce is that there will be no substantial changes to the commercial requirements. But there have been some indications that some of the changes are to better align with the GDPR. So, Coben, what do you think this will mean for companies? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think at the moment, we're sort of in a wait and see posture on that. We continue to hear assurances from the Department of Commerce that this negotiation was not about the commercial framework, that all of the or that the vast majority of any enhancements to this framework have been on the side of the government, of government access and the assurances that the governments are making to each other. But we're also hearing that there might be some ministerial updates to the commercial language. First of all, there sounds like there's going to be a name change that would require a update to everybody's privacy policies. If they're if you're committed to Privacy Shield, you just have to swap in the new name here. 
but we're also hearing exactly what you said, this, this indication that maybe there would be some modernization of some of the commitments. The reason for that, if I can speculate, is likely because the original, the, the, our last version, Privacy Shield, was still based mostly on the 1995 directive rather than GDPR. It had kind of vestigial language from the directive that hadn't been fully updated to GDPR. Some of that goes to some of the data subject, like it, it flows through kind of the whole document in some way. Some of the requirements, there's a, there's a different set of data subject access requirements that are slightly different from GDPR. The sensitive data is defined slightly differently. I don't know if all of those things will be addressed in these ministerial changes or if it'll just be some subset of that. Either way, I think it should be relatively achievable for companies, mostly because the those adjustments, I think, are somewhat historical relics at this point. I think a lot of the 1995 directive language is so outdated or is, is sort of has been so surpassed by additional developments, including GDPR and, and U.S. policy developments and all global privacy best practices, that most companies are complying more with kind of GDPR requirements than with how they were phrased originally in the directive. So we still need to wait and see. I think luckily, like BBB national programs will be there to help explain what their participating companies need to do. I look forward to their guidance, but I also have a strong interest in this and will try to help IAPP members understand what steps will be necessary to update those requirements if there's any kind of substantive changes that are required in the promises that you're making when you're, when you're certifying under Privacy Shield. So it seems that in a lot of ways, companies are still, we're still a, a bit in limbo or in a waiting period for waiting for the next steps from the European Union and then determining what steps companies should take. When, when companies are thinking about, well, should I go ahead and self-certify under the Privacy Shield now? Will that put me in a better stance if adequacy is granted? Sort of what is your advice to companies in thinking through what they should do now? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it's impossible to say if there will be any particular benefits or sort of grandfathering in that happens from between now and when full adequacy is granted. We can maybe look to the history of of Privacy Shield, the kind of boom and bust cycle here for some indications. I think just as a matter, kind of a practical matter, we saw a large number of companies rushing to self-certify when the last framework came into place. Some people did act early and kind of got in line uh, before there were a lot of companies rushing to join the, the program. And because it involves kind of administration from both independent recourse mechanisms like BBB national programs, and then also the U.S. government involvement, the Department of Commerce having to review and approve applications, it can take a lot of time when there are hundreds of people waiting in line. So for that, from that perspective, it I don't know that it hurts to apply early and apply often. <laughs> or just apply early, I guess. But I think in, in any scenario, we're going to see companies will eventually be working through this on their own time. And Rebecca, any advice to companies out there? Yeah, absolutely. So most of my sentiments and advice really do echo what Coben was saying. But at this time, companies should be reaching out to their IRMs and just remaining informed, right? Stay up to date, stay informed of what's going on. 
and what processes are happening. But I do want to caution companies who have allowed their certification to either lapse or never had certification to avoid kind of this fool's Russian impulse, right? So our understanding is that current participants will be grandfathered in, meaning at the time of the EO, companies that were participants are okay, right? And will enjoy a, a much smoother transition from Privacy Shield to this new DPF framework. But it is unclear whether companies who have decided to sign up like right now, i.e. after the EO was announced, right, or prior to the adequacy decision, if they'll receive the same benefit. So exactly what Copen was saying, right? So we're still waiting on guidance from Commerce. We are actively reaching out to them and really encouraging them to, to put that out because, as Coben said, we pay really close attention to this, and especially me, right, as policy counsel, I am always looking for news updates and any information that we can get so that we can inform our partners and our participants on what they need to do next, right? So I just think that companies should stay informed, work with your IRM. And if you don't have an IRM and you're looking for a new one, you know, I have heard that BBB National Programs is, is pretty great. So shameless plug. <laughs> and Rebecca, just for our listeners who might not know what an IRM is, could you explain? Yeah, so that is your independent resolution mechanism, right? So that is a component of the GDPR. You have to have this mechanism in place to handle any sort of complaints that you receive as, you know, from EU citizens about how their data is being utilized. Thank you. So I guess we're all still using the standard contractual clauses for the for the time being. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that like this is the concerns about government surveillance were not limited to the privacy shield mechanism. They impacted our reliance on SCCs just as much. It just SCCs were not the subject of the court case that was decided. They are the subject of other actions currently that are still being uh, worked through. That's why this kind of belt and suspenders approach is what most companies undertake, I think, um, when they can. But one thing to note about SCCs is that when the executive order is finalized, is fully when it fully has force of law in the U.S., such because the Department of Justice needs to implement um, regulations uh, that are required under the EO, once that happens, it is the law of the land in the United States, and therefore the commitments that the U.S. is making about government surveillance are in effect for all types of transfers from the EU to the U.S., whether or not they're under Privacy Shield or SCCs or another mechanism. That is important for companies because it will impact the calculus that you are uh, putting into your data privacy, your data transfer impact assessments. There's too many types of impact assessments now. Your data transfer impact assessments will now kind of have a different answer towards the beginning when you're asking about the risk of government access. We now have some clarity as soon as those regulations are implemented on exactly what the rules of the road and the risks for a data access are in a way that is much more certain than the last two years have been. And I think one one point we have not touched on yet is so privacy advocacy groups in this space are likely to be vocal about have we had any indication from various privacy and advocacy groups as to how they feel about the executive order? Yeah, I think we've heard from civil society that they disagree with the approach overall, that they think that this is not going to meet all of the concerns that were 
addressed in the last court case. Certainly, uh, Max Schrems is dissatisfied with this executive order. Others, including folks from EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, have voiced their specific concerns uh, with the contours of this agreement. I think the number one issue that civil society has is the fact that most of these protections flow from the executive branch of government. They would they consistently wish for surveillance reform to be implemented uh, by the legislative branch that would create more oversight from multiple branches of government. But given kind of the reality of the, the political reality around legislative reforms, we are left relying on the executive branch to create this type of creative mechanism. And we just, we have to see, it'll be up to the court, if there are future challenges, it'll be up to courts to decide whether this is enough to satisfy legal requirements under both the EU and the US. Um, And thank you, that's helpful. And Rebecca, can you talk about the disconnect between the concerns that some privacy groups out there have regarding consumers versus sort of what the data is telling us about EU consumers and their concerns? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we're thinking about what Max Schrems complaints truly were, this all started with his vendetta against Facebook, right? It was truly about him not liking Facebook and Facebook Ireland transferring data from Facebook Ireland to Facebook Inc. in the U.S., And that really was emphasized when everything came out with the surveillance stuff with Snowden. And so this really kind of lit the fire. But that's a very specific kind of complaint, right, to a very specific audience. Does that also mean that the average consumer is concerned about this, right? And, And my experience and what I've seen and what the studies have shown is no. What consumers are more concerned about is transparency and generally just kind of honesty from companies, right? That companies are being upfront with how they're utilizing their data, why they're collecting it, where it could be shared to, because they're coming to these corporations, you know, and these companies for a reason, right? If someone shows up at your your website or they show up at your, your service, it's because they want it. And so at that point, the consumer has the ability to to see what you are doing with their data. And as long as companies are being forthright, transparent, and honest, most consumers seem to to want to work with that company, right? And that a recent Cisco study was put out, and that's exactly what it said, that 90% of, of consumers said that if, if a company didn't have the data protections in place that they expected them to, they would take their business somewhere else. So consumers are really just expecting that companies do the right thing, tell them what they're going to do, and then just uphold the responsibilities that they say that they would. So Colvin, I don't know from the IAP, IAPP perspective, have you seen anything different in some of what you know other privacy professionals are saying or what consumers are expecting in this space? Yeah, I, I mean, we don't sit in the same position as BBB National Programs in terms of, of watching. I mean, I think it's, it's always a unique position to be able to see consumer complaints like the, the direct issues that people are raising under mechanisms like Privacy Shield and kind of looking into actual, like, what are data subjects most concerned about? I don't get to see that in my current role as much, uh, but I certainly uh, hear a lot from privacy professionals and, and read some of the same studies about how consumers and, and, and individuals in the EU are thinking about and uh, pursuing privacy claims. Yeah, so I think the 
IAPP sits in a different position than BBB National Programs in terms of having direct insight into what consumers are thinking. I think it's really cool always from the IRM perspective to hear the actual complaints that you're receiving from EU data subjects and what some of their concerns really are through the commercial mechanism that's established there. I think from the IAPP's perspective, looking more across the landscape at what privacy professionals are seeing and some of their concerns and and how they're interacting with data subjects, I my main takeaway is more about what this type of framework, what Privacy Shield 2.0 or the DPF, uh, if we want to call it that, will mean for U.S. businesses. Kind of looking at the legal landscape here, we see that without a federal privacy law, these voluntary frameworks are really important for bringing up consumer trust and meeting those requirements that you were just describing, Rebecca, and kind of helping consumers to feel more confident in individual companies' practices. Privacy Shield was always kind of the most robust set of voluntary commitments that we were widely seeing among U.S. businesses, especially before California's laws have gone into effect and and some of these other U.S. states. But even now, when a company is self-certified under uh, the Privacy Shield framework and now the new framework, they're committing to a set of practices, at least for with regard to EU data subjects, but possibly across all their ecosystem if they wish, that is enforceable by the Federal Trade Commission and represents something that's really in line with European values and goes a step beyond uh, what's required under U.S. law. So it's still a really powerful commitment that's being made when companies are making it, and I think it does help to enshrine kind of consumer trust here in the U.S., Thank you very much, both of you, for such a great discussion. There's a lot to think about, a lot to consider, and a lot still to be worked out. We usually like to end each episode with a look forward and ask our guests to give one or two thoughts about what our listeners should expect on this topic over the next year or so or any other hot topics on privacy. I'd love to get thoughts from both of you. This one is a bit tricky given the backdrop of the EU-US data transfer framework, but If you had to give a prediction for where this lands or what our listeners should know or do, what would you say? Coben, I'll start with you. Thanks. Yeah, that's a a big question. I think, first of all, we're likely to see scrutiny in the EU shifting away from some of their closest allies and towards other countries, I think, and, and data transfers that go outside of the kind of realm of countries like the United States, I think we might start to see more scrutiny around other kind of non-allied countries and how data transfers could be addressed in, in those areas. When it comes to the U.S., I think we're still on the edge of our seats in terms of new developments around privacy here, including legislative advancements that would change commercial practices in the U.S. In the absence of that, I'm always really interested in watching these voluntary frameworks that have accountability mechanisms in place because I do think they continue to help enshrine consumer trust in the United States as they create these enforceable commitments from companies that are really aligned with European values and bridge that gap, bridge the difference between the U.S. and EU. So I look forward to seeing whether companies come back to this framework and and continue to adopt these voluntary mechanisms to, to showcase that they really are committed to consumers' best interests. And Rebecca? Absolutely. So I think one thing that I would say looking ahead for companies and just kind of some practical things, right, is be ready to move quickly, right? So as soon as this takes effect, as soon as there's an adequacy decision, 
it takes effect immediately. And so companies should be in the position, make sure you're speaking with your IRM now, right? If you have an existing one, if you're looking for a new one, find that that entity, right? Again, BBB National Programs, heard it's great. But once you have all of that in place, be prepared to move quickly, right? Because you want to go ahead and stand up your program, make any edits and everything very quickly. And remaining informed and remaining in contact with your IRM will definitely help you do that. Beyond that, what Colvin was saying, the, the importance of this seal, right, that you do get is it, it can't be understated. And as I said with the Cisco study before, 91% of consumers, when they see that a corporation has an independent seal certifying their program, they are more likely to trust the company. And so the importance of this truly can't be understated. And so corporations should be thinking hard about this and taking the next steps they need to ensure that they're protecting data and they're showing consumers that they care. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. This was a great discussion. And I think hopefully our listeners have walked away with a better understanding of the backdrop and sort of what will happen next. Thank you to both of you for joining us today and to our listeners for joining into another episode of Privacy Abbreviated. Thanks so much for having me. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave us a review and let us know what you'd like to hear about next time on Privacy Abbreviated. We've added links in the show notes and look forward to seeing you next time.